If you are a scout or coach looking to find or help players, then Pitch is the website for you. It's a startup, but the idea is to complement the scout's role in finding talent, especially in lower leagues. Pitch is likely to arrange trial days in the future, so a scout might be very interested to make a profile. For a coach, it's about the onward development and mental health of released players, helping them find a team or club and provide a talent ID and development reference on Pitch. So make a profile today at www.pitchrmt.com. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Coaches Coffee Club podcast. Uh, I am joined yet again by my good friend, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello, mate. Um, we're recording this on Thursday. Uh, yesterday was International Podcast Day. So uh, I guess no better time than to, to thank everybody for all their continued support and um, specifically to, to Soul and the guys at Pitch for helping get this podcast up on up and uh, off the ground over a year ago now so uh, big thank you to soul and pitch if anyone wants to go and visit uh, pitchrmt.com some great stuff going on there around scouting and recruitment and providing opportunities and support for players um, so yeah just a quick thank you to everyone who's who's continued and has featured or, or shared or gave matt and i some feedback and and for those kind words on our last episode Matt I'm not sure what we expected we just had a chat and, and put it out there and it, it seems to have gone down quite well yeah there's some really good feedback like you said it was um, an opportunity for us to catch up so I wasn't expecting anything so it was very nice to to hear some positive feedback that, that people enjoyed it and, and took something from it as well yeah I, I think one episode of you and I was enough for, for the meantime so tell us tell us who we had a chat with today because uh, I have to thank you for linking us up with today's guest yeah I mean it was fantastic wasn't it we were just chatting then briefly but we had Tom Young on today Tom is a performance psychologist uh, he's worked some uh, a really amazing amazing people and performers so it was a, a really good chat and, and really we, we we brought him on because he's just uh, published a book and we wanted to sort of pick his brains on um, the background of his book and, and really what, what he wanted to get out of writing it. So it was a fantastic probably hour, I think. Yeah, yeah. Really enjoyed it. I found myself typing away, making notes during it. But anything anything particularly that stood out to you from, from the conversation we had with Tom? Yeah, I think just the, the fact that he was trying to, to to demystify psychology and, you know, talk about it, that it, it's not something that's... Um, in addition to it should be integral in, in everything that we do um we are dealing with human beings whatever we do and that's sport business uh family we're, we're we're a human being and we're dealing with human beings i think that probably jumped out at me the most the fact that it really the importance of understanding each other understanding yourself and, and developing those relationships that allow this stuff to then you know come to fruition i thought was was really interesting yeah, what about he, had some, he had some great. Yeah, I thought so much, so much. But I think one of the things I've always understood or, or known the importance of reflection, but I always battle with how to do it, what to do, what questions to ask. And he simplified that and, and gave some real good ideas on how players and coaches, what they can ask themselves following a game, a session, any type of performance. So that, that whole stuff around reflection, I know I'll, I'll start to use that from, from today, my sessions today. So, but like you said, we could have gone on for hours. We, we kept asking, God knows, we were fighting each other to ask questions, weren't we? <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was really good. So I can't, can't thank you enough for, for introducing me to, to Tom and can't thank Tom enough for his time. So I'm yeah, sure the listeners agreed. are going to enjoy it. They will, they will. Good stuff. So um, here it is, here's our chat with Tom Young. Um, have a look in the show notes or, or follow us on Twitter or anywhere. You'll, you'll see all the links uh, to Tom's work and specifically where you can find his book. Uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy this. I know Matt and I did. This is our conversation with Tom Young. Good morning, Matt. Morning, mate. How are you? Very well, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, good. Thank you, mate. Um, good to catch up again. Really excited for uh, the guests we've got today. And uh, I'm going to pass the reins over to you because I know you've had the pleasure of uh, speaking to today's guest in the past. So uh, 
um, let us know who who we're going to be chatting to and, and some of the some of the focuses for the discussion this morning. Yeah, thanks, mate. Well, this morning we've got um, Tom Young on. Tom is a performance psychologist and he specialises in um, team dynamics and leadership. Tom, um, I've done a lot of work with with Tom in the past and actually through a friend of a friend, didn't realise we knew each other uh, until we bumped into each other at a wedding. So that was uh, that was interesting. Um, Tom works with some really exciting people. Um, he's got some really exciting projects, probably for this podcast, the, the most exciting stuff will be his work with Everton, um, Belgium FA, uh, Tommy Fleetwood, the um, 2017 Race to Dubai winner, and also the uh, winning European Ryder Cup team as well. So there's some really impressive um, references on his CV. And most recently, we can add published author to, to his resume as well after releasing his book, The Making of a Leader. So... I'd like to welcome Tom onto the podcast. Good morning, mate. Morning, guys. How are morning, we? Tom. Thanks for joining us, mate. No problem. <clears throat> good. How are you, mate? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. Very good. Good to uh, good to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Firstly, obviously, we can't not mention it, but how was lockdown? And did you uh, keep busy? And did you keep entertained? Um, entertain. Well, yeah, yeah, basically. So um, my wife works in the NHS, so she was kind of three days a week in the hospital. So I was um, thrown into childcare looking after a five-year-old and a, and a two-year-old. Um, so that was, that was, it was good actually, you know, to get time with, with them. Um, and then obviously work-wise, just trying to juggle that. I think like everyone else, um, I think everyone became a little bit more understanding of people's um, yeah. experiences throughout that. Um, but no, there's a bit of time with the with the family, and then trying to keep the business kind of just ticking over. Really, it was, it yeah. was quiet. Did, it was did, quiet did you manage to to do that during the period? Or uh, yeah, pretty much. There was a there was there was a balance to be had, and there was some like late kind of late night work and things like that. But at the same time, mm. I had the book coming out, which from a mental perspective was a real. It was something to to strive towards in a time when a lot of people maybe didn't have that. So for me, that having yeah. that on the horizon, having that coming out in July was a really kind of positive thing. And since then, you know, it has been a little bit flat because this book comes out and then, you know, where do you go from there? So that's kind of where I'm at now. Yeah, how, just a... how exciting was it? Sorry, Lee, how exciting was it? Because you know, I know you've been working for like five years and getting the book out. Was it, yeah, was it more think... of a relief or was it, were you yeah, excited it, about it? It was strange because in lockdown, you expect... Uh, well, so sorry, not in lockdown, but pre-lockdown, you think, well, I'll have a launch kind of event and, you know, have a bit of a celebration of it and, and try and mark mark the occasion. And as it happened, I was playing golf with a few mates the day it came out. Like nothing, nothing changes. It just kind of suddenly yeah. is available on Amazon and in shops. Um, and there was some PR around it, but it was quite surreal in that sense. And when I started out, what you know, when I decided I wanted to do this, um, and we'll talk a little bit, I'm sure, about where the book came from. But in my head, yeah. the goal, the moment was Waterstones shelf. And so it came out. It was in Waterstones. So I'm searching for it. So I'm in, I'm in Preston. I'm searching for it. And it's not in stock. You have to order it. I'm like, well, I don't need to order it. I don't need to buy it. I've got some. So I, I, I rung the publisher. I said, could you get Waterstones Preston to actually stock some? Because you've got them in Manchester and Liverpool and London, but not in Preston, which is you know, hopefully where a few people might buy it. So yeah. I went in, <laughs> I went in where one day and I found it on the shelf and took a took a picture. So that was pretty cool. Um, so yeah. Waterstone's shelf was the background on my phone for, for a good few years. So now my my kids are back on it now. So yeah, you know, they've taken back over. Of a, what an achievement though! It's, it's really yeah, good, mate. You. Well done. Yeah, it's been a long old journey. It's been it's been interesting to understand that process as well. Yeah. Go on, Lee. Yeah, sorry, I was just going to ask, John, before we go on to, to getting into the nitty-gritty around your work and the book, speaking of lockdown, me and Matt had a chat about this recently. <clears throat> Is there anything that sort of you've learned from that that it, professionally or, or personally around what you might do differently going forward? Or I know me and Matt had some conversations around things that have now come to our mind and we want to carry forward, but I'd be interested to hear if that period of time has, has caused anything to come to light for you. I think there's a little bit of, you know, there's, there's, ex, there's external expectation or, or kind of a narrative on how people should work or how, you know, you should work long hours or you should work nine till five. And actually that's probably been, you know, parked a little bit. And I always had quite a, a flexible working style anyway. 
Um, I think it's really important to structure your time. So as a psychologist, people would probably expect, well, I should be really good at that, that kind of motivational piece, but you're still a, you're still a human being and you still have kind of limitations and, and blind spots. And, and one of mine will be when I structure my day and, and really plan that, I'm, I'm great, I'm really productive. But there are also days when I don't do that and I'm not as productive. So I think that's probably one of the things I've taken away. And the other thing, I think when we, when we first started and everyone was going crazy for Zoom, or house party or Microsoft Teams and everyone's doing quizzes and that quickly died out <laughs> or it did for me anyway. Um, there, goes, there goes the end of this podcast then, Matt. Oh, we, 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 somewhere else. Well, we, got, we went on house party afterwards. But the, um, <laughs> so that side of it, I think what I really missed, so after we've come out of lockdown and I know we're at a point where we don't quite, it's not, it's not normal, is it? But at least you can, you can travel for work, for instance, yeah. and for me, that was going out and having that connection with people again. So having meetings um, and being able to have that and doing some of the golf work that I do and being able to bounce ideas off people rather than having to do that on Zoom. Now, Zoom is great or the equivalent um, when the relationship is maybe there and you need to, to get something done um, quite focused, but it doesn't replace that kind of either camaraderie or team dynamic that you get. Yeah. I'm actually going, what do you think about this? Have you ever done something like that and been able to have that? So I've really missed that. And because I work for myself, so I'm on my own quite a bit, but normally I go out, meet people, come back. So I really miss that social side and being part of a team or, or kind of meeting other people and bouncing ideas, really. So that was a big part that I, I kind of miss, really. Mm. Yeah. Is that I something as soon as you come out, have you just gone mad and tried to meet as many people as possible then? Um, not... Well, I suppose you're getting towards where you've got to find people who want to meet you as well because there's still that yeah. risk well, of, yeah. of doing it, isn't yeah. there? But yeah, like I think, so I, the first day I did some of the golf work and it was like a couple of us. And obviously golf's great, so easy to social distance. Yeah. Um, and I came back and my wife was like, oh, you're a bit hyper, you're a bit excited. And, and I think that was it because you've just been starved of that social interaction in that traditional sense where you can, it's a bit more tangible. Um, so I think so, yeah, I think... Uh, on both a, a social level and a professional level, I was keen to get out and meet people where it was where it was safe and just start that conversation again. Um, whereas, you know, I think being locked down in, in your office is um, it's good for some elements. You can do work that maybe you, you hadn't got round to because you were always reacting to clients. And when it went quiet, there was there was an opportunity to do things. But again, mm. it, it doesn't replace that that interaction that you can get. Yeah. <laughs> Now, well, well, we'll come on to the book, obviously, in, in a bit. But, um, I mean, at the start of the book, you can see, I mean, you've got some amazing references in, in the book and quotes from some amazing people. But rewind before all of that, before you met all these people and interacted with all these people. Mm. Is, is this a field that you always wanted to be involved in? Is it something that you've come across by chance or was it a planned journey? And, yeah. and just tell us maybe a little bit about, about the journey. About the journey, yeah. I think... So it wasn't a master plan, first and foremost, or not from the, from the offset. So I was always passionate about sport. Um, and I also always enjoyed writing. So one of the first things I thought about was sports journalism, like dream job, you know, travel the world, covering sports. Um, so that was one of the first things. Teacher, sports teacher was something. Um, but as I kind of so I went through high school, went to college, kind of played football and rugby throughout that, not to an amazing level, but to a decent, a decent level. So I was always interested in it. And I went to uni and studied psychology at undergrad. I went to Lancaster, which was great. And it was, so it wasn't sports psychology. It was mainstream. It was like a very broad um, curriculum or, or degree program. And I didn't go thinking I'm going to be a psychologist. And not many people who go and do psychology or even do a master's in psychology, go and become a psychologist because of what it, what it takes and, and the time it takes and the investment it takes. So I went there with quite an open mind thinking, I don't really know what I want to do this will probably open a few other avenues. There's, you know, you could go into teaching, you could go into HR, you know, whatever it might be. And then as I was going through that, I did some kind of work experience at a business consultancy um, in Preston, which was, which was great. And it was in sport and I had this, this kind of opportunity and I was kind of doing match analysis and things like that, but it was just a bit of an avenue into, into elite sport, really enjoyed it. Um, and someone just said, um, where are you doing your masters? Almost like it was it was to be expected. And my first thing was, I'm not doing a masters because I've just left that world and I don't really want to go back to it. Um, but it did start me thinking. And then I had a year where I was working as a kind of 
lifeguard, football coach, gym instructor at the local leisure, leisure centre. I say gym instructor, that's quite a... You know, I don't know how, how specific I can be with that, how qualified I was for it. But um, So I, I spent a year doing that and, and kind of reading around the subject. And I, I enrolled at Liverpool John Moores um, to do a master's. <coughs> kind of just think, because I didn't, still didn't have a plan. Went into that, got through the end of that and started to think, actually, I could, you know, I could kind of do something from this. And um, I'm someone, if, if I do something, I kind of want to do it properly in, in my head. Yeah. Like, I yeah. want to complete it, if you will. So, although you never do, you never complete it, obviously. But I wanted to go through that process. And the next step from the master's is then you've got a couple of options and there's different within psychology. You can either go down the basis route, I think, if you've done sports science before and you become like an approved practitioner. And if you've gone down the psychology route as your undergrad, you can then do um, like the BPS, the British Psychological Society. They do like, a, they call it stage two now. It's basically, uh, it's like, um, as you practice, you're getting qualified. Um, yeah. A bit like an accountant. Would like on the job. Yeah, yeah, on the job training, you've got to do case studies, you've got to do reflective diaries, you've got to do a piece of research. And, and that's kind yeah. of where, where the book started. Um, so then you get through that process and... Um, and then you're, you're, you're a psychologist, but you've then got to decide what you're going to do with it. Some people do research, some people do applied work. And I'd always enjoyed the, the applied work. You know, I didn't really want to go and do any more, any more research, yeah. not in that academic sense, because I'd, I'd had enough of it, to be fair. Yeah. So when, when you came through that, what, what was your first sort of um, role in, in this field? You know, so you've come through, or, or even when you were doing the on-the-job training, what, yeah, what yeah. did that look like for you? So again, again, so I was working then full time within that business consultancy in Preston, um, okay. and we were, and that was there was some psychology around that that was quite focused on psychology. So I was really lucky that I was around some good people that kind yeah. of gave me some responsibility that kind of trusted me um, and enabled me to have a bit of freedom as well um, and supported me throughout that process. And the, the main body of that work was in business. So you'd be doing, say, some stuff on recruitment. Are we recruiting the right kind of characters? Um, there would then be some kind of admin stuff. So invoicing, printing, organizing diaries, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. There was always the opportunity, also the opportunity to deliver things. So we delivered stuff in schools around mindset. And, you know, those kids who were <clears throat> borderline on the GCSE kind of target grades, that was really cool. Um, and then some of the sports work as well. So I got a little taste of, of some of that in golf and in football, some really good experiences. And then that, that process, that qualification process was probably again, like four years or something. Cause it, you're working at the same time, having families, yeah. and whatever. like you, you kind of ebbs and flows a little bit. So you might go really heavy for six months, then not do anything really for, for six months. Okay. Um, yeah. and the research side really delayed me cause I couldn't set, set on something to something to do. And then after a while, I think, you know, I wanted to go out and do things in, in my own way and in my own style. So I started Cognite and that's where I am today, really. So what, what would your, um, what would your, your week look like then? You know, do you have, a, do you have an average week? You know, does it, do you have any sort of routine to, to your role? Because you manage yourself. You know, mm. what, what does it sort of look like? If somebody said, you know, what, what is your job? What, what would you sort of, what would you so, say? Yeah. It's, it's funny because you say psychologist and, and in sport specifically, like people, you still get, I think it's changing, but you will still get people make the odd comment or, you know, shrink or whatever it might be. Yeah, because um, I see no leather couch in, the, in your background there that people... No, yeah, the, there is a couch. Yeah. Actually, if I move if I move the camera, <laughs> there is a couch, but it just sits there. No one, no one comes in and sits on it. Um, <laughs> it's... But it's not so don't like I know we're joking, but it's those kind of like perceptions of it. And I think yeah, I do think they're changing. But sometimes I don't say I'm a psychologist. You know, sometimes I might say oh, I'm a performance coach or I run my own business, consultancy business, and then get into it. And because some people really they want you to be kind of chartered and protected title and ethically bound and all that. And some people don't even ask. You know, some people it's more about right. the conversation and the rapport that you build. So in terms of a regular week, I suppose especially at the moment, I mean, a regular week in lockdowns, like Zoom meetings all the time and then yeah. looking after kids. But if we go back to before that, hopefully what we're going towards, kind of slowly moving towards now, there is no regular week. So um, there's variety, which I enjoy. Um, yeah. Sometimes you have, well, no one's going to really, kind of, no one can tell me what to do. So it does have to come from that kind of self-starter mindset. 
Um, so some one week you might, so I'm lucky to, to work in golf, you might be at a golf event, which take up almost a full week. You know, if you're at a major yeah. or something, it's a full week out of the diary. Um, but a more typical week would be a combination. So you might do some one-to-one sessions with clients either in, in, in person or on, on Zoom. Um, and they might be, you know, someone from football or rugby or, um, or golf. Um, but equally, you might be working in a business, again, on something like a team dynamics project where you're working with a group of people. So to get yeah. that range of experiences with different, um, with different groups and different kind of demographics is really, is really kind of motivating for me. And then mm. at the same time, you've got to come back, you've got to work on the business. So I haven't got anyone who's going to send my invoices out or sort my diary. So I have to do that. Um, the book has obviously always been there for the last four years. So I've got to decide, you know, am I going to do another one? So that's a part yeah. of it. I've got writing, I've always enjoyed that. So just trying to create a blend, really. You know, I've always wanted Cognite to kind of be 50-50 sport and business because I yeah. enjoy that variety. And it's people at the end of the day. That's, you know slightly different contexts and different different environments but it's human beings and yeah you get that, you get that combination really um so there is no there's no regular week there's no i was going to ask you i was going to ask you about the the obviously you work in sport and you work in business and um, i was going to ask you about the commonalities or differences between the two or, or, or are you seeing are you seeing very similar stuff from both areas just the context being slightly different yeah, I think, so say with an individual, and, and it changes with the sport, doesn't it? Because people say, well, you yeah. work in golf. And I kind of fell into golf. Like, I didn't grow up playing golf. And one of the strengths of my approach... It's funny because golf, every time I try and ring you, you are on the golf course. So I just tell you I that. I find that funny to hear. <laughs> yeah, I know I should be better. But um, <laughs> I, think, I think you've got to understand the sport. So you can't work with a golfer in the same way as a footballer because if you look at just their performance skills from a mental point of view, the, the games are so, well, sports are so different in terms of the, you know, the running time and the, the reactive versus proactive side. Um, in terms of business and sport, there are lots of commonalities, I would say. So resilience, for instance, is a word that we're talking about a lot. So actually, what yeah. is it? How can we build it? What are the, the, the daily behaviours that kind of drive it? You know, it is a little bit more than just, oh, I bounce back if something goes wrong. Um, and there's a piece on that that seems very consistent across sectors. But one of the things I learned from the book is the best people in, in sport want to learn from business as well. And I think we have this narrative that, okay, what can business learn from sport? But all those people that I interviewed have spent time in businesses. You know, how do you manage a, okay. you know, an organization or how do you deal with that? And there's curiosity on both sides. Um, obviously, the sport is arguably more glamorous because it's so demonstrable and we're seeing the results in its social media and everything like that. But actually, there's a, there's a common interest of sharing ideas. And I think that was a big thing that came from, from the book on that. Um, but team dynamics, again, is, is people. It's how human beings interact. It's, it's me understanding that if I need you, know, you to do something or if I if I want to work on a project with you how do I push your buttons how do I need to adapt my style um do I need to slow down do I need to be more direct do I need to give you loads of detail or does that annoy you all those kind of things that's just people working together and it some people do that on a football field or and some people do it in a bank or a school it's just human beings interacting so that team dynamic is really consistent but actually, there's no pattern to a per- there's no perfect team. We want some cognitive diversity. We want people to have different beliefs and and different mindsets and different approaches. But there's no kind of template for an ideal team. It, sometimes they work, don't they? Sometimes you wouldn't think they would, but there's just this chemistry and it works. And sometimes you look at it and go, "That's really well set out," but it doesn't. So I think the challenge with psych- psychology is that it's often not <laughs> tangible, and that's where some of the kind of uh, like the mystification around it comes from as well. Tom, just um, speaking around the, the sports specific side of your role, what are, what are some of the things that maybe teams or athletes will come to you seeking support or help with? I know you said around, referred to yourself around the performance coach. And so mm. what are the, some, not necessarily going into specific individuals and details, but what are the common yeah. things that people will approach you and say, Tom, we need your help. Um, this yeah. this and this 
I think it's it's really interesting because there's a I had some early experiences. I know you mentioned some of the the places I've worked before, and I think within sport there's and, and I don't I don't know if this is specific to kind of senior level versus like academies and, and things, but within say within an organization, I had a couple of experiences where you kind of knew the players were a little bit unsure of you know did they did they approach you or would they prefer for instance to speak to someone independent of the club which you can understand because I, th- I kind of try and put yourself in in their minds in their shoes and think well if a club is making a decision or a manager is making a decision on contracts and players and wages and all those kind of things whether you're going to be in the team then do you go and speak to someone who's employed by the club and some do some don't um i've seen a little bit more of a pattern where so now within I'll have people approach me independently, so individual athletes, and they can be from a team sport, but you're working with them individually, which enables you to then really understand kind of what makes them tick and 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 therefore what you can help them with. Um, so there's that independence, I suppose. You go and speak to someone who's outside the club if we're talking about mm. football. Um, and do they, do they come to you saying, I just want to be better, or do they come say, I really need help with this part specifically? Yeah, to, to be honest, Leo, I mean, with... Um, some, some, some of the best projects I've worked on have been when people go, I haven't really got a problem. I'm just really interested in this stuff. I just want to get better. And I think that's a mass, it's a really good point actually, because I think there is a definite trend still. And again, maybe it's changing and maybe it's club specific um, where psychology can be seen a little bit as a last resort. Oh, we've tried the, the, the technical, we've tried the, the tactical, we've tried the physical, like, oh, let's just get a psychologist in. And <laughs> it can be this kind of like, let's, let's solve a problem. And you come in as some kind of mystical kind of advisor to try and solve this problem. Whereas, whereas actually it should be seen as a proactive element. You know, we have the four corner model. Well, let's make it, let's make sure that it is level. And I know there's some great stuff in, in academies that's going on, um, you know, in, in terms of that and making this stuff a little bit more normal for young players to kind of talk about it yeah. and to embrace it a little bit. So I get both. And when you work with someone who's got a problem, you are more solution focused. I think in my early days, I would go almost straight into to that. Oh, let's let's try this tool or let's try this technique, like self-talk or visualization. But actually, you've got in that in those instances, you've got to take a step back and try and understand, okay, that's how that person is labeling this problem, but is that the actual problem? Or, you know, are they just like you giving you a glimpse into what it might be? And actually underneath is something else, something deeper. So you can have both. And often if they're coming with an issue, it's quite targeted. And sometimes if it's just about getting better, it's a little bit more of a longer journey because you might then, it might just become, you. so in football, you might see someone every three months or something like that. It's not like you see them, you know, all the time. But in golf, when you play it every week and it's an individual sport, you, you may well be in touch with them daily, weekly, at least, and seeing them really regularly and working with their with their team. And then, Going back to the, to the question as well, if then a team approaches you, it's quite interesting. You've, I think you've got to understand what that team or what that group of staff are looking for because I've had it in the past where they kind of maybe bring you in because they think they should have a psychologist, but they don't quite know what that psychologist is going to do and they're a little bit nervous around it. And that's then my role to go, okay, well, this is what I would expect to be able to do. This is what I'll need from you to help me do that um, in terms of your backing and your support. But one of the things you try and do is demystify it. So straight away, I would typically work with coaches, work with the staff, um, you know, and qu- that might be on resilience or something like that. But it might also just be understanding the people you've got, because as coaches, I met people who, well, they're all re- like, you kind of get a, you get an idea for a player, don't you? And you, and you'll start to make judgments on that. So you might have worked with a player for a number of years, and you've got a really good relationship with them. So if we did something on a profiling piece, you might think, well, I kind of know this guy already. And it becomes an interesting conversation. It's not like you come in and do a profile and say, right, this is how you do your job. Like, forget all that stuff you've done for the last few years. We're going to do this now. It becomes a a conversation because that coach's instinct and that coach's um, experiences and everything they've gathered is really valid to that conversation. But equally, you might make a new sign-in and you want to help that player hit the ground okay, well, what do we know about this person? What's this personality type? And how do we maybe flex our style? Who's the best person to, to bring this player into the club? Because it might not always be the head coach. It might be 
one of the assistants, it might be a physio, it might, you know, you don't know. Um, so working with that staff to try and understand where the key relationships are and then how you improve them um, is an area I'm really passionate about because it's almost psychology via stealth. It's not, it's moving away from that model of, right lads, or right players, let's all get in. Let's get into this lecture theater or whatever it might be. We've got a psychologist coming in and you come in and you feel like a villain or like people are just suspicious or, or whatever. And moving away from that kind of, oh, is Tom going to come in and motivate us? You know, that's one of the things that people say. Oh, do you motivate X, these players or this person? And you're like, not really. It might be a bit of a side effect, but actually most of the people that I work with, you would class, if they've come to me, that you would expect them to be self-motivated um, in order to do that. What they're looking to do is understand the role that psychology and the brain can play in driving either performance or well-being. We we talked about um, on a, on the last podcast. We talked about the Amazon Prime documentary of Tottenham, and when Mourinho came in, I found it really interesting that they he got his staff to do a bit of digging to see who was the most influential in the changing room. Mm. You know, mm. and and that's that's similar to what you talked about there. Is about quickly understanding the group, who's the most yeah. influential, who works with that person, who works with that person, and mm. and pretty much what he did really quickly was get them on board with what he was thinking. Yeah. Um, is, is that like an example of that? And, and do you think that's a, a good way of doing it? Because you mentioned it there, like psychology by stealth. That's yeah. sort of what he was doing, wasn't it? Yeah, you just want psychology. I just want psychology to be part of the conversation, not this kind of afterthought that we have. Um, and for it to be this, well, what, what is it? And it's like, I, I watched that as well. And kind of, I can't remember who they were, I think they were talking about maybe Sissoko at the time. And, yeah, they were, um, yeah. Thoughts about him, didn't they? And like who, who you kind of, influences are in in the dressing room and I think that's a good start but one of the things you would say is well extroversion is really easy to spot because it's the ones who talk most and talk the loudest and probably take the mick a little bit um but underneath extroversion there can be insecurity there can be anxiety but because we see extroversion we go oh they're really happy and confident let's go and worry about this person in the corner who's quiet and actually the quiet person could be really confident they just don't want to get involved in that they're very they're more selective on on their interactions so you've got to go a little bit deeper and that probably comes over time as well um and from conversations that the coaches have um it's not always the role of the psychologist to do that the psych psychologist might be more of a sounding board on that kind of thing um mm. you know and you all know as in, in the jobs that you guys are doing then there's a psychological element to that as well and you will have relationships with key people within that where you are almost playing that role of the psychologist. So there's no kind of one size fits all in, in what we do. But yeah, the Amazon document, documentary is really interesting. And even watching him doing his debriefs or his pre-meets and things like that, you know, and it, it was it was very much, I was surprised at maybe how little was said sometimes by the players. Yeah, you know, yeah, we said that. Yeah. You know, there wasn't much opinion in there. Now, obviously it's Amazon, it's a documentary, it's, it's a certain story that they're telling. So you can't just make a judgment on that. Um, but yeah, personality and, and looking for those things is a really kind of good starting point. Um, and, and I think that's part of it. Like some people think, well, I don't have this player's personality profile or their behavioral profile. Or I haven't got a psychologist in. There are still things you can spot to try and see where someone might be, but it's not just watching them when there's a camera or when there's a, um, they're yeah. in a group. It's watching them when they're having a one-to-one -one or when they're on their own or when they're, They've just lost the ball in training, whatever it might be, and starting to understand, you know, where does that come from from a psychological perspective? And therefore, you know, do I need to give them loads of information or am I overanalyzing them and they're just going to switch off, for instance, straight away? Um, do I need to keep it varied and fun or are they quite happy to be doing the same thing and working on the same thing in the same way? Um, do I praise them in public like an extrovert, for instance, you, you know, on, on a basic level, praise them in public unless you want to wind them up don't criticize them in public. So some managers might do that to get that impact. Yeah. So they might do something a little bit deliberately to annoy them. Um, but really any criticism you're going to do on a one-to-one -one level there with an extrovert, because their driver is to be popular and to look good and to be, be kind of center of attention almost. And if you make, if you embarrass them, then they're going to have a negative reaction. So it's understanding some of that stuff and you don't need a personality profile all the time to do that. Sometimes it's, it's intuition and it's instinct and it's observation. Just, um, just going back a tiny bit, Tom, I, two questions and it, it will, the second part will probably lead us into discussing around the book itself. Yeah. But you said, um, 
some of the athletes or teams you work with, they come to you with a request just to get better. I just mm. want to be better. So my first question would be, is there any commonalities that you find in those players? I know you, you work with the elite athletes, but any commonalities in things that then you would spend your time working on to improve players, which might, which, uh, and then my second part to that, which you might lead into is, then how would you, or how could coaches, because I'm conscious you have a lot of coaches at grassroots level listening, yeah. any tips that they can start to maybe add some psychology into their work um, yeah. to develop those things, if that long-winded question makes no, sense? It, no, it, it, yeah, it does. I mean, when people, there's a couple of things that you might encounter quite a lot. So I think, and again, we're kind of maybe generalising a little bit here, but I think in, and this isn't just specific to sport, but I encounter a lot of people who are very, very kind of set or they're very, very almost perfectionistic, I suppose. They're very structured. Um, they're very driven. They have very high standards. And that's great because that drives behavior, that drives training, that drives commitment. But it also sometimes makes us overanalyze or it makes us get bogged down in kind of overthinking or what if this happens and what if that happens? And it can inhibit that kind of behavior that we want on the pitch maybe a little bit more risk-taking or, or free. Um, so one of the things you get is overthinking um, and how you counter that. Now, one of the first things, if you've got someone who does that, and I'm talking about, I probably am talking about kind of senior players, you're not going to change their personality and make them not care or just kind of not really think like that. You've got to try and manage it. So if you've got a player who's thinking, still thinking about the game six hours later, if we can get that to four, then that's a big improvement. I mean, it's still overthinking. but so little things like trying to get people engaged in regular reflection, like I'll suggest it to people. And you actually, the ones that go away and do it, are the ones that are probably a little bit more serious. What was good, you know, as we can ask that, what needs to improve? Nice way of asking what wasn't good. Um, what will I do in order to improve? So focus and attention on it. And what did I learn? And seeing those, that kind of progress, once you've, if you get down on paper, people do it on voice notes it's that regular habit of reflection where you can then move on a little bit quicker especially if you've got a lot of people who are overthinkers and i think that's relevant to coaches but also then as a tool for players and you get you're getting them to take responsibility for it because i just say listen I, you know unless we're working together on a regular basis i'm not going to check up on you every week see if you've done it I might check in every every month or every couple of weeks or whatever and just drop you a text but it's on you that so there's a little bit of responsibility there and then there's little things that come up. So um, that's one habit that everyone can do. You don't have to be a footballer or an athlete to, to do that. Um, the other one is managing critical moments. So those key moments in a, in a round of golf or in a, in, a, in a football match, obviously it's very, very different because there's, there's not as much thinking time in, in football. But giving players some examples of how they, ma they might manage those. So if the referee you know, makes a decision they don't agree with and you have those players who... They go missing for five minutes because they're so frustrated or they go and take that out on another player um, and, and get booked or get sent off and cost the team. You know, how do we help them manage those key moments? Because actually the rest of the game, we want them thinking freely. We want them playing with a, bit of, with a bit of freedom. Those little moments. And that is about talking about it. It's about getting them to outline how they would expect, I don't know, one of their role models or, or, or how they would want themselves to be seen to react in that way. Um, and sometimes it's about getting a teammate to help as well. How do we help this player react if the red mist comes down or, or the frustration comes out? So critical moments, are, you know, they can make a massive difference to an individual's match, you know, because you'll know players who they'll make a mistake or they'll, something will go wrong and that's it. It's really hard to get them back. Um, so if we can get them back quicker, then that makes a, a positive impact on their performance, but also from the team perspective as well. That's really good. Those those questions as well. I mean, the the youth award, which a lot of the, the coaches and grassroots coaches will have will have gone through, talk about that reflection. You know, they they mm. use what what went well, even better if, and what would I change next time yeah, as yeah. a coach reflecting on their session. Yeah, but that's that seems to be quite a good process to get our our players mm. into as well, isn't it? That yeah, that those yeah. you know, and I I also like the additional bit of what you said about what have I learned. You know, that's. Mm. I think that's that's a really really key I mean, point. And you you can make you can make that final question more more aspirational. So what have I learned for when I'm playing in the first team? Or yeah, you know, you know you've got to be careful with that kind of stuff as well. But you know, there's some great examples of people who, who've done that. And I think you know the the best people I've worked with 
I don't have to chase for that. They'll send them to me. Yeah. Uh, and it will be, it'll often go beyond those questions. That question is just a framework. And some people are talkers, aren't they? Some people want to write stuff down. So there's an element of that as well. But it's about the daily habits. It's not something. Yeah. So for instance, you go and see a psychologist and, and you say, oh, try this technique, it'll work. And that's it. That is something that you're going to do. You're probably going to miss a week or you'll forget. Or, and you've got to come back to it. It's a long-term commitment, that. And, yeah. you know, some weeks you'll be better at it than others. And that's because you're a human being. So it's about, but it's not just going, oh, well, I don't do that anymore. Because at some point you want to look back on a season or a year or even during lockdown. You know, that's one of the things I got people to do during lockdown. It's hard because you're not, you have, there are no matches. There is no training. Yeah. You have to go a little bit deeper on a psychological level. Um, but it's something you can look back on and say, well, I've, look, you don't feel you've progressed that much because you've not maybe gone from the under 18s to the first team. But actually, you've made the, all these improvements. If you read back through these reflections at the start of the season, you were making more mistakes or you, were, you, know, you weren't making as many crosses or whatever it might be. And this has now improved. So it kind of reinforces some of that as well, rather yeah. than, I think sometimes we're impatient, aren't we? We expect ourselves to do it straight away. And actually, Very much so. yeah. it's just sticking in there. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep working on these habits, tiny, tiny little steps. And suddenly at the end of the year, you can look back and you've come, you've come a long way. It's a really good habit. Yeah. You know, it's not like it's a, it's a psychologist secret. Like you said, it's, it's widely practiced, but I think some people will do it better than others and more committed to it than others. It is a skill. Yeah. It shouldn't be seen as something that's like a, a piece of homework. You know, it's something yeah. that is for the benefit of that individual as well. I'm conscious of time, Tom, because I've got I've got a million questions, and when we're when we're talking, I've probably got a million more that jump into my head. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try and go yeah. and pick the ones that that maybe um, are probably more pressing. So I'm gonna jump on before I jump into the book. I'm gonna jump on your experience at the Ryder Cup mm. and how how did you um, manage yourself? Because you know you talk about variety in your program. You could have been working, you know, with some academy players or academy coaches who are maybe quite far off you know the first team environment where that pressure mm. is to mm. then suddenly be working with the you know rider cup team you know mm. highly pressurized you talk about critical moments that's yeah. that's pretty pretty critical in, yeah. in their career how do you yeah. firstly how, how did you manage yourself um yeah. and and secondly then you know what what did that period look like and probably what was what was Going back to your reflection, what did you learn from that period in the Ryder Cup? Yeah, so with that project, you've got to put, you've got to put a bit of context around it. So I wasn't Rory McIlroy's psychologist, you know, and, and nor what I, I claim to be. So I think sometimes people that you're, you're like doing motivational speeches to all the players, and and again, it comes back to actually they're all self motivated. Thomas Bjorn, the captain, did a great job that week of kind of keeping it pretty normal. He kept it quite funny as well with some of the stuff he did as a, in a team room. My work was done well before the event. So we, we did like a, a team dynamics exercise and then it was working with Thomas and the vice captains about, okay, how do you manage different personality types? Basically, how do you, because these people are, they're not leaders. Well, Thomas Bjorn, it's funny the Ryder Cup because you win the Ryder Cup and suddenly you're put on this pedestal as an amazing leader. And Thomas mm. was a great captain. He was also very aware. So he did the forward for the book and he was very yeah. aware. He's got this like, really focused or short experience as a leader so he didn't want to be seen to be trying to put himself in the same bracket as these people who were doing it on a daily basis with this this group of these groups of players so he was really aware of that and almost quite self kind of deprecating with it yeah um, that came across in the in the in the forward actually i yeah. thought that he was he was very yeah. modest i would i was said yeah and yeah. it's there's a whole book um, the captain myth i think on the Ryder cup which is fascinating because if you win you're a great captain if you lose you're not yeah. and actually yeah. you're a brilliant captain and the americans or the opposition whoever just play great or just get lucky or whatever and you could be a, a bit of an average captain but your team play amazing so that is sport isn't it so you don't want to go kind of go too like intellectualize it too much at sometimes but what we wanted to do, whereas in golf, it's very statistics-based. Um, a lot of the time, it's very easy to grab these stats. But we wanted to put some human stuff around it as well, just to understand, okay, from a human perspective, who might complement one another? Who might not complement one another? And therefore, when we're communicating with them or when the captain is communicating with them or the vice captains, how do we do that? How do we deliver our information? And that work yeah. was all done, like we said, by Estelle. It was all done way before Paris. Um, 
and it was you're just working with people. So, so, so pretty much then that when when they went out there, the psychology aspect is integrated into the the coaching when they're there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't mean, and I don't mean coaching from a, a technical point of view. I mean him as a leader. As a leader, psychology yeah. is, is already integrated. Yeah, he's in, got and it's his practice. Yeah, and it starts before that because you're communicating with players, you're picking the team, and everything like that. And yeah. you've got on within that environment, you've got players know each other. Um, players have played with the captain, so it's a very kind of unique dynamic. And we just wanted to add a human element to it. Now, what you're you've got to be aware of as well is that each player has their own team around them. <clears throat> so they will have individual psychologists that work on their, their own mindset on their own core stuff. I was very much yeah. focused on that leadership and the, the team side of it. And then I was also there with Tommy um, as part of his team as well. So my role was dual during that, during that yeah. week. But the main part of it by that point was, was with Tommy and, and his team. Um, and just to be there if needed for the for the captain, and it was it was great actually. I won't go into it, but since then I've heard some really good examples of when that information was used when you were selecting okay. a player or telling a player they weren't playing and things like that. Um, and it's just understanding that they might be amazing golfers and they might have you know be really successful and and you know make loads of money, human beings, and you know you need some emotional intelligence when you when you're dealing with them. Um, so it was a big part of that. And in terms of what I learned. I think I learned that people are open to this stuff and people, um, you know, they were, they were great because then they haven't had all the experiences that a football manager would have um, or, a, or a rugby manager would have. Um, so they were really kind of enthusiastic around it. Um, but it's still, I also came away thinking it's still, re- you know, it's still relatively untapped in, the, in this way. Um, yeah. It kind of drilled home for me. You've got to make it accessible for the coaches. So if I came into to where you guys, you know, if I came into Preston and went, here you go, there's 25 reports on each player. There's 15 pages on each player. Well, you might, might, you might, you, you, well, you might read them all. I don't know. But, <laughs> but someone goes, what am I supposed to do with this? And typically what happens, they go in a draw, they wait for that player to have a problem, and then we'll get it out and, and look, oh, he's injured, okay. not informed. Whereas what we want to do is make that information accessible. Digestible. Digestible, part of a conversation. So my big thing for the coaches in a team is to, when we're having a coaches meeting, and, when, and you don't need me there, um, is as well as the stats and who's fit and who's playing well and all that kind of stuff, right? Let's just look. If, if this player is injured, what are we losing from a psychological level? And then if we're going to bring this player in, what does that do to the psychological balance of the team? Are we getting more aggression? Are we getting less you know, what's that going to yeah. do? Does someone else need to be aware of that? Um, and it just becomes part of the conversation. That's like my, my aim with a lot of this stuff, just to have it alongside the other elements of it rather than this kind of yeah. one that's just a little bit further away that people are a little bit guarded about. Yeah, so you, you, mentioned, like, you mentioned demystifying it and almost humanising the, these athletes and coaches and players. Is that... Is that sort of where this book, your book came from? Is this the sort of idea of where it came from? Yeah. So, I mean, going back to, like I said, it, it was part of, so it was a piece of my, it was my research when I was doing my, my chartered yeah. qualification. And it took me so long because I couldn't settle on a topic. I didn't want to do something just kind of off the shelf. I wanted to do something that was, that was interesting. I've always been interested in that kind of, you know, teams, culture, leadership. Um, so it came from that. And I started to think, well, how could I, who could I reach out to? Who do I think I could maybe get in front of and, and ask to, to contribute to this? Um, and a little bit was about that demystifying it. And whether that was an aim or an objective or whether that's just been a result of it, you know, when you yeah. meet these people and when you, um, I think as a fan, um, especially if we look now at your Jurgen Klopp's and Guardiola, and if we go into rugby like your Eddie Jones, there's this kind of, almost like a unicorn reputation. This person comes in, this mythical creature and saves everyone. (laughs) It's all down to them. And actually when you speak to them, they wouldn't claim that. That's not from their, their creation. Um, But what you realize is they're all human beings, you know, and you can see that now with, uh, with Guardiola at Man City, like they've got some issues they've got to work around. Still an amazing coach, but everything is perfect. And one of the things that came out of the book was that all these coaches have had, what they would class as failures. And they've also had what they would class maybe modestly as success. Um, 
and that actually, again, it, these people aren't special, dare I say it. Um, and there's lots of different personalities that I've covered within that book. Um, so yeah, definitely demystifying it has, has hopefully come out as, as one of the, the outcomes of the book. Yeah. You realize actually these people are, you know, they're vulnerable at times. They've got limitations, they've got strengths and they're all different. They're not all, yeah. you know, Jurgen Klopp, I think evidently is pretty extrovert, but a lot of the people I interviewed aren't and they're still leading mm. teams at the highest level in the biggest competitions of the, <laughs> in the world. So, Tom, do, do any of the, the sort of leaders you've, you've worked with or, or observed, do, do they have common traits between them or is it very much individual ways of doing it? Um, I think, if, so, the, so the, the people we interviewed for the book, um, so Stuart Lancaster, sorry, let's have a drink. Um, Stuart Lancaster, who at the time was at England Rugby, and then we did a second interview at Leinster after they'd won the double. So straight away, you can see the, the polarity of, of those um, experiences. Michael Maguire, who rugby league, been at Wigan Warriors, been at South Sydney Rabbitohs when they'd won the, the NRL for the first time in 40 years. That's owned by Russell Crowe. And he's now at West Tigers in the NRL and also the New Zealand rugby league team as well, I think. Ashley Giles, who was at Lancashire Cricket and is now with the ECB. Gary Kirsten, um, who was the coach when India won the Cricket World Cup. Dan Quinn, head coach at the Atlanta Falcons. Um, and then football, you've got Sean Dyche, obviously, at Burnley and, and Roberto Martinez, who, you know, he did two interviews as well from his time at Everton and then his time following the World Cup. Um, and I would say that there's... There's probably more, in terms of personality, there's more differences than there are similarities. I think there's a conviction about your decision making. I think you've got to back your decision making um, and be able to do that. I think there is a resilience in all of them that comes from a range of whether that's personality or experiences, because you've got to, you know, you've got to be able to deal with the fact that everyone has an opinion on how you do your job. I think Sean Dye said, you know, it was like, Everyone has an opinion, but you wouldn't go to a doctor and they say, oh, you've got a chest infection. And you go, no, you haven't. No, no I haven't. That's not, that's not right. I've got this. <laughs> Whereas someone will quite happily say to him, why are you playing that formation? Or why are you playing that play? You should be doing this. I know it's constantly debated. So you do have to have a bit of a thick skin. And I think reflection was a big part. You know, people would regularly reflect um, on, you know, in terms of what we've just talked about, but what was good? What, what needs to improve? Who do I need around you know, and not thinking they've made it. There was always that progression. And there was always that search for and willingness to, to seek out learning opportunities, um, to go and visit other environments, to go and speak to someone in business. That kind of continuity of learning, you know, even from people who have led at the, and coached at the top, top level was, was still really strong. Yeah. And one of the things that obviously like we all did over lockdown watched and listened and read everything possible yeah. but one of the big things that came out especially you mentioned eddie jones earlier i don't know mm. if you listened to his podcast but a lot of the stuff come out around relationships and people yeah. skills and mm. it just seems to be for me that was one of the biggest lessons i took out of whether i was watching yeah. a football coach uh, an american football documentary anything it was all yeah. about just interpersonal skills i guess that's massive for your role as well as successful leaders yeah it's and sometimes you're the your coach so you you might have a coach who's not naturally i'm saying naturally naturally kind of wired towards that so eddie jones i, I haven't heard his part I've, I've actually downloaded his podcast not listened to them yet um i think that's one of the things you miss because i haven't been driving anywhere i've not been listening yeah, to yeah. um <laughs> but i heard him speak actually at filed rugby club um this was following the world cup and he talked about that he talked about performance relationships and I think, so obviously Stuart's in the book and Eddie's followed Stuart. And I think one of the things he benefited from is probably the work Stuart had done. And then being able to come in and be a very, probably a contrasting style, being a little bit more aggressive, um, a little bit more no-nonsense, a little bit brash. But at the same time, I think he talked about lockdown and how do you get these messages across to these, these young athletes um, who are all different characters. And he's probably made more of a concerted effort to upskill in that sense because his natural thing will be well how are we going to win and are you going to help me win so if your energy is all focused on that it's then hard to save energy for building trust building you know caring like one you know wondering about the family so it might be a little bit more deliberate with someone like eddie jones but he's obviously seen that the importance of it 
Um, and if you watch The Last Dance, everyone talks about The Last Dance, don't they? Like the guy who's leading in the NBA is Steve Kerr. You know, it's not MJ, is it? It's not yeah. Pippin, it's not Rodman. It's not all these superstars. It's this Steve Kerr who's got this amazing backstory. And in the book, I talk about, um, you know, there's, a, there's an element of his, of his coaching within that um, and how he gets the, the, the most out of Steph Curry and how he interacts with him on the sideline during a game. And it's a great example of, you know, some one-to-one communication with a superstar player. And he's the one out of that group of Chicago Bulls that is now the leader. And I would imagine, and I don't know him, obviously, and I'm, I'm making judgments on what I've seen and read, but the relationships are, are at the core of that as well. He basically cares about his players. So I think it's, it's massive because the days of a player oh, grow up, you know, I want to play for Preston North End and that's it. That, you know, there are fewer and further of those, those players around because they have ambitions and they have different drivers and some want to play for England, some want to, you know, set their family up for life, some want to just have a really good career at that level and that's okay. And some want to play for Real Madrid in the Champions League. You know, it's, there's different motivations and you've got to be able to tap into that as well as their own, their own style. So it's the relationship side. I think people are talking about it more. I think it's been there. It's always been there. And there'll be something when you look at Ferguson. I mean, yeah, he was, he was tough on players at times, but I think there was an undercurrent that he, that he cared about them and he understood them and he understood their families. So it's not, it's not always something new that we're talking about. It's maybe just reconfirming something maybe we already know or something that's maybe got lost with all the analysis and things like that. Whereas actually this is a, it's a human endeavor. Yeah. Sorry, Matt, I'll let you, I'll let you, Wrap it up in a second. I got one more question because, like you, loads are popping into my head during this. But um, you know, especially when you're working in team sports and working around sort of leaders or leadership, how how important is, I guess, followership and the people in that team buying in? And I know you work with the leader to try and influence yeah. and, and build that relationship. But how important is it? Like you said earlier, you, you, win or lose doesn't necessarily make you a good or bad leader or coach. But mm. how important is is that aspect? massively so you need you need buy-in don't you you need um and you do need some people who who do follow and you also need people who may be challenged at times as well so in terms of support staff a lot of the people i interviewed talked about having a blend having a blend of people who will basically back you regardless and then the people who are a little bit they know you that well that they'll they're, they're okay with a bit of conflict that they'll challenge you that they'll go back to you um and they'll say if they disagree um so there's a real balance to be had there and I think then in terms of a group of players, you know, you can, you know, senior players, for instance, can do a lot of that work for you if you get them on board. But it's also challenging that thinking because you might have a young player who maybe isn't a senior player in that sense, but in terms of their talent they are or in terms of their influence they are. Um, so getting, I know we talk about the term cultural architects and, and to be able to spot those people. I think that's really important, but it's also... You know, when you look at culture or vision or we're going to do this, we're gonna, this is the goal. If we just write that on a, on a wall and then never talk about it again or never explore it or ask someone else what they think, then they are just words on a wall. Um, so constantly reinforcing those messages and behaving in a way as a leader that, mean, that, that almost illustrates that, okay, he's walking the walk or she's walking the walk here. She's representing these values and these behaviors that we've talked about. Um, and that always reinforces it. It gets people's respect. So Gary Kirsten, the, the cricket uh, coach, when he was at Indi- with India, he actually talked about an experience where he went in, and I think he, ch- he said I was naive. I basically went in to try- and tried to do what I'd already done somewhere else without understanding like, the nuances of the, the Indian culture. And actually what it came to, he said, you know what? I'm not going to do this vision and all that kind of stuff. I'm just going to work harder than anyone else. I'll go and throw balls. I'll go and catch balls. I'll go and do batting practice. I'll be out before them. I'll carry the bags. I'll carry the water. And I'll just show them that I'm, it, that I'm here. And that did more in terms of behaviours and actions than he could have done stood in a classroom or in a meeting room talking to them. So there's loads of different ways. So you can't just see it as, well, I need to get them on board, so I'm going to do a speech. That might be one element. But how do I then reinforce that? And you reinforce it with your daily conversations, your one-to-ones, your group interactions, and then actually what they see when they're watching you what they see when you're watching you on Sky, if you're a manager and you're speaking to the media and all those things kind of tie into this narrative that you're trying to create. 
And that's what makes the psychology of it so fascinating because it's so complicated or so chaotic. It's so intangible um, that makes it so fascinating. Um, one, of, one of the things, and this will be the last question, I promise. But one of the things I really liked about your book is at the end of each chapter, you've sort of given like a little overview. You called it leadership lessons. And I'll just, just read a couple that have jumped out about you know, the need for resilience and empathy and being able to absorb, listen, write, learn and mimic. And uh, sometimes progress is more important than perfection. So these, these sort of things here, we've talked about leadership lessons, but you, are, are, these, are these sort of, could these be used by anybody? Never mind just if you're wanting to be a leader. I'm thinking about, you know, if somebody has a goal that they want to achieve, those things that I've just read out there are actually really important for them as well. So, you know, is, is this book... It's not really just about being a leader. Is, is there more, more to it as well? Is it sort of anyone picking it up would, would learn something from it? I'd hope that anyone who, you know, if you're interested in sport, you know, and, this, and the sports that we've talked about, so you've got a real kind of cross-section there in terms of traditional team sports. If, you're interested, if you are interested in leadership or you are a leader, and that's one of the things, you know, we, there's a lot of different types of leadership. You do not have to be an MD or a CEO or a head coach to class yourself as a leader. And, you know, you might lead a classroom of kids or you might lead a junior football team or you might mentor two young people. Um, you know, might, might, might be a parent. You know, it's, there's lots of different ways to lead, lead by example, lead by inspiration. And I think, so first of all, there's lots of people who lead in different ways that can take something from it. But definitely, it's also an exploration of these people um, and of their makeup and of their qualities and their limitations and the lessons that can come from that. So if, mm. so Stuart Lancaster wasn't a, a rugby coach, he would be a teacher. He's already said that because of his background and how much he loved it. But at the same time, a lot of those qualities would make him successful in, in what he was doing. So there's definite lessons to take. If you look at goal setting, if you look at resilience, yeah, I've tried to write it in a way where, you know, the, the interviewees, their words are a big part of the book, but that, Hopefully I tie it together and outline some lessons that people can, people can take, but it's not reserved for you. And I, and I hope I've written it in a way that it's not reserved for you, you know, people who have the, the title of a leader because there's yeah. a lot of leaders out there who don't have that, that title as well. Yeah. I think, I think that's probably what jumped out at me that I think it's actually some of this stuff is relevant to everybody. And that's, that's probably what, what I really, yeah. really liked about it. Um, thanks. Thanks Tom. For, for coming and having a chat the book obviously is available in waterstones and preston where else yeah where else is it i think it's sold out from all the other waterstones um <laughs> it's so it's on amazon which I, yeah you know you never like just pushing one but obviously that's kind of an easy way to to get it it is on yeah. waterstones um and, and all all good bookshops i think yeah and we're, um, we're happy you're happy for us to we, we can put the information on our podcast yeah, notes, can't we and your yeah. website as well if, if they wanted to learn a little bit more about yeah you as there's, well. a, there's a there's a page on the website um cognite.uk.com that's the, and there's a page on the book that gives you a little bit of the backdrop backstory of that um but yeah it's out it's out now and it's it's available hopefully in uh, in all good bookshops and fantastic and, and, and thank you very much uh, and what and what next before you before we let you go what yeah. what next for you What's, what's next on the horizon? I think it's maintaining that focus of, so for me, trying to make it accessible, trying to demystify it, um, trying to move away from this, um, the kind of, I don't know, motivational tag and, and get it more accessible for people. And I say it, I mean the field of psychology. And that for yeah. me now, that's not reserved just for sport. I'm still really passionate about sport. It's still, you know, I get really excited about going in and working with, whether that's a, an under 18 team or a, or a PGA golfer, it's, it's about helping that individual. And sometimes the most, the ones that sound the most high profile aren't as rewarding as the ones where you get some real high quality conversations where you don't expect it. Um, so getting it out there to as many, many people as possible. I enjoy the variety. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to do another book. Um, although that's quite daunting when you just brought one out and you're yeah. doing it, you kind of think, do I want to, do I have the energy? Do I have that to do it again? And, and I think I do. Um, and getting back to getting back to, to working, I suppose, and getting that getting that energy going and getting out and meeting people. Well, well listen, thanks thanks very much for joining us this morning. From a personal note, really, you know, I'm really pleased for you. I'm really pleased that the book's come out so well and I'm pleased that you got your Waterstones moment as well, because uh, it was yeah. a good photo. 
Um, yeah. And thanks very much for, for coming on and, and wish you all the best. No worries. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thank, thanks, Tom. Appreciate it, mate. Cheers. Take care. Thanks, guys. If you're a scout or coach looking to find or help players, then Pitch is the website for you. It's a startup, but the idea is to complement the scout's role in finding talent, especially in lower leagues. Pitch is likely to arrange trial days in the future, so a scout might be very interested to make a profile. For a coach, it's about the onward development and mental health of released players, helping them find a team or club and provide a talent ID and development reference on pitch. So make a profile today at www.pitchrmt.com. Thank you.